Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. So emotions are the foundation of mental health, yet as opposed to physical health, we don't really get any instruction on how to take care of our emotions, not even how to take care of them, but also how to understand them, how to manage them, how to think about them, how to process and work with them. And so I thought this book was quite a, a quite a nice introduction to that. And obviously, if you've been following me on Instagram, you've been seeing that I've been doing a lot more posts on kind of the physiology of emotions and also the the kind of evolutionary efficacy and purpose and mechanisms behind emotions because again one of the things that people don't realize is that emotions aren't these things that just descend on us out of nowhere they are hardwired into our brains so they are there and they are there for a purpose and I think that's one of the things that I try to talk to my clients about a lot is actually this emotion isn't here to hurt you it isn't here to upset you it isn't here to make your life worst there's a message in it there's a signal that is trying to get your attention and if you can do that if you can understand what the the message of the of the emotion is then you're in a much better position to manage it and move through it and carry on and and live your life and essentially being able to manage your emotions as I guess you would have read in the book and I'm assuming you've all read the book um being able to manage your emotions gives you as the author says, and as I think it's her big selling pitch, excuse me, in the book, is that it gives you the confidence to be able to move on into other areas of your life and to be able to tackle big uh, conversations or take big risks or just be more authentic and more honest because you know that you can tolerate how you feel in the moment, that you can survive whatever the the difficult physiological experiences, do what you need to do and then carry on with your life, which is exactly what I would want all of you to do. So the book talks a lot about the physiology of emotion. Did anybody have any questions about that or any thoughts about that? Or did anything kind of shock you about the idea of the physical side of emotions being the difficult part for us to think about? No? Okay, so what I will do is talk a little bit about that physiology and largely it will be around the activation of our sympathetic nervous system, uh, which you will commonly know as the fight or flight system. 
And that fight or flight system is, again, it's that kind of hardwired part of the brain, part of the entire body, because obviously, obviously the brain and the body are connected, that is there to alert you to any sense of risk or threat or harm. And so many of our emotions are there to try to help us understand and to uh, bring our attention to things that might be risky for us. And in our evolutionary history, the things that were risky for us or dangerous for us were things that would damage our relationships or mean that we would be shunned from the tribe or uh, abandoned or kicked out. And so, so many of our emotions, if you think about it, are about our interpersonal relationships. So many of our emotions are about how we connect with other people, what other people think about us, how we manage other people's esteem of us, and how we repair those relationships. And so if, for example, we think about uh, two really difficult emotions, guilt and shame, um, and I'll be doing an Instagram post on this a little bit later, but if we think about guilt and shame, actually, the first thing that's really useful to know about guilt and shame is that they are, again, two emotions that are ubiquitous across different cultures across the world. So we're not thinking that this is just that guilt and shame are just facets of our environment. We're not thinking, OK, it just happens because we live in the West or because we live in the East or wherever. Actually, it's ubiquitous. It's general. It's And therefore, we think it's actually something about how we relate to one another. And guilt and shame often overlap, but they are quite different in that guilt is often about our feeling of having done something wrong to other people. And guilt tends to lead, lead us to, the feeling of guilt tends to lead us to try to repair that relationship. So if I've hurt someone or let someone down, I might feel guilty because I have, I, I, you know, I want to then repair that relationship and improve that. Whereas shame tends to make us want to retreat. And shame is correlated with how much we become devalued by our peers or our group. So if I steal something, I might not feel immediately guilty, especially if I don't know the person or, you know, whatever it might be, but I might feel very ashamed of telling anybody about it because then they would think less of me and I want to hold on to my self-esteem I want to hold on to my sense of integrity and therefore uh, shame is believed to be built into us to stop us from doing things that might lead other people to to devalue us so I'm going to hand over to you guys again any thoughts on that or any questions on on those ones and if you've uh, listened to my podcast on anger, anger is, again, one of those emotions that is really hardwired into us. So there's an area of the brain in, in another area of the brain called the hypothalamus where there are neurons that are dedicated to kicking off an aggressive response. And, oh, thank you. Um and we think that it need we needed that we need aggression or we needed aggression again during our evolutionary history because what it did was to allow us to defend ourselves and it allowed us to perhaps to defend our territory 
or to defend our bodies against attack uh, or to defend and protect other people. And in the anger podcast, I talk about um, that idea of anger not being negative, but the idea that if you can understand anger and part of the message of anger being actually something is wrong, something is unjust, then we're much more able to use anger for a good purpose, for a positive purpose. Um, And I talk about anger being um, righteous, you know, making use of righteous anger. You must feel like a teacher talking to a silent class. Yes, (laughs) I do. (laughs) Um, I just, because I want to make sure I'm saying things that are interesting to you. um, And I'm aware that if I just talk, I might just tell you things that I find interesting that aren't relevant, but I really want it to be as relevant for you guys as possible and to answer your questions so yes so thank you I'll just carry on um and see how we go I did actually get a question in and a few questions in and so one person said steps to acting on emotions once you're aware of them and I'm not sure I'm not sure if this person read the book The idea is that, first of all, you have to be aware of how you experience emotions. And so uh, we all have uh, different ways of experiencing our emotions. We all have different ways of feeling and of being. So for some people, for example, they might feel anger as palpitations or tightness in the chest, or others might feel it as uh, tingling in their skin or feeling of flushness. And so the first thing to do is really to get comfortable and familiar with the way that you experience your own emotions. So what you, it's, if you're not familiar with doing that, and often people aren't because they've grown up in families or environments where emotions haven't been discussed or that uh, emotions have been suppressed or emotions have been dismissed, you know, I don't want to hear about that. Be very, you know, be quiet. I don't want to know. Um, then you won't have had the opportunity to become familiar with with how you feel things. And so part of the first step of acting on your emotions is to just get familiar with them, understand how you experience them, understand where in your body you experience them. And that comes from understanding that emotions are physiological, right? They're not just in your brain. It's not just all in your head. It's very much in the body. And the when you kick off the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response, This isn't just stuff happening in your head. You have a release of stress hormones, which affects every single organ system in the body. So your heart, your lungs, your gut, uh, you know, skin and respiration, blood sugar, all of that shifts when you feel certain emotions. So you need to kind of get to grips with the idea that emotions are also physical as well as mental and then understand where you feel them. And then I think in terms of acting on them, is understanding what they mean. So that's what I say about different emotions have different uh, messages to give you. So guilt and shame are about having done something wrong or feeling as if, as if you are wrong. Um, anger might be about injustice. And so understanding what each of the different emotions mean and then making a decision about what you want to do. So if you feel guilty, for example, then you need to think, and sort of say to a client of mine who suffers from quite almost pathological guilt. She feels guilty for things that 
are nothing to do with her are her fault. So you have to think, okay, so I feel guilty. What is that experience? And then if I told a compassionate stranger what I was feeling guilty about, would they agree? Would they think that I had done something wrong? Um, if I told my therapist what I felt guilty about, would they agree? Uh, would they say, yes, you've done something wrong to this person that you need to make amends for? And then if the answer is still yes, then what can you do? What can I do to repair the relationship um, and commit to doing that thing? And again, so it's about understanding the, the, the issue behind the emotion. So with the shame, what have I done that I think is shameful? How can I repair my esteem? And that might be about helping someone or contributing in some way that helps to kind of rebalance whatever that thing is that you feel shameful about. Um, it's probably worth saying that often shame and guilt can be mobilized uh, pathologically as in the sense that sometimes people can make you feel guilty or make you feel ashamed for things that you shouldn't feel ashamed about. So body shame is a big one of those. You haven't done anything wrong. Your body isn't wrong, but we live in an environment where we're made to feel shame uh, about our bodies. And so people internalize that feeling. And again, that's about interrogating that, you know, what have I actually done wrong? When did I sign up for the idea that my body needs to be a particular way? I didn't. So maybe this shame is inappropriate and I can let it go or hand it back to whomever or whatever was making me feel ashamed. So again, a kind of long answer to that question. So first, understand how and where you feel certain emotions. Uh, try to work out or get familiar with what your emotions mean. And then uh, if we're following the advice of the book, then we're thinking about tolerating those two minutes of physical discomfort, horrible sensation, awkwardness, discomfort, cringe feeling, and then committing to whatever action is necessary, riding out that difficulty and then committing to whatever action is necessary. Um, I had a question in, so I'm just going to scroll back. I just left a very angry partner. I had too much compassion for him. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry, it's just a comment. Um, thank you. I'm glad uh, you found the podcast helpful. Um, I've had a lot of comments about the anger podcast, um, which I, I guess is one of the reasons why I really wanted to to do a book about emotions. Um, a new question. I feel the intensity of my emotions block their message. Um that's a really good point. So again, so, and I, in my most recent post, so hashtag awkward part two, I talk about things that can get in the way of us being able to tolerate our emotions. And for some people, it might simply be a kind of constitutional thing where they are just built more sensitively. Um, so you know how some, you know, some people have 20-20 vision, some people are short-sighted. Some people are really sensitive to certain sounds and some people can just, you know, go with the flow and they don't worry. So we all are born with different wiring and that wiring can affect, obviously, our sensitivity to the physiological side of emotions. Um, there are some things that you can do. Uh, so there are some kind of 
preemptive things that you can do. And one of those actually is physical exercise. And why that might work is because it's exposing your body to a stressor. And when your body experiences a stressor, we get what's called the hormetic response. So that is when your body gets stronger in response to a stress. So when you're lifting weights, for example, you're putting a stress on the muscle and your body responds to that stress by getting stronger and you can lift more the next time. So physical activity can build in more resilience to the entire physiological system. And we know, for example, that people who exercise regularly have a greater resilience or greater tolerance to distress. So if you're someone who might be particularly sensitive, then uh, exercise, including yoga, is could be a really useful intervention for you. Similarly, and I, I sometimes hesitate saying this because I think mindfulness is one of those words that can be a bit overused and overprescribed and not taught very well. Um, so I say with some hesitation, mindfulness or some sort of mindful practice, something that helps you to be quiet and kind of be introspective. Uh, I would recommend journaling because what that can do, we know for sure that writing your emotions down is a form of emotional processing. So when I tell people to journal, it's not just because it sounds like nice or I think it's, you know, a quirky wellness idea. It's because there's good evidence that when you write something down, you turn something that is abstract into something that is concrete. So you have there's a way in which it gets organized in your brain and, and modified and conceptualized, and it's much easier to deal with. So this person might find it uh, useful to have a regular writing practice. So it doesn't have to be pages and pages. With some people, I suggest starting with just one line a day where they say, these are the things that happened and this is how I felt. And that's just about getting familiar with the way that you feel and the way that you experience your emotions. Because if you can do that, then you're going to be much more sensitive to the early stages of your feelings before perhaps they get overwhelming, right? So if I if I regularly reflect on how I feel, if I regularly kind of check in with myself, then as I start to feel anxious about something, or quite often I get the feeling where, oh, I'm feeling a bit out of sorts and I'm not really sure what that is and so I'll say fine um, I'm just gonna gonna have a quick you know pop over it and do some journaling and I'll work it out and in the working out then I work out oh it's because I've got this thing coming up next week I'm a bit anxious about it or I feel a bit underprepared and then I've got the opportunity to do something about it so those are two kind of practical things it may be and this is the part where um, this is why I get annoyed when people give like kind of short answers on social media to complex questions, because actually complex questions have quite complex answers. It may be, for example, that this person who gets overwhelmed by the sensations of the emotion before they can hear the message of it grew up in an environment where emotions weren't talked about or they weren't uh, valued. So if you were if you grew up in a house or an environment, it doesn't necessarily have to be family it could be school uh boarding school or it could be a sports team coaches and other adults can be really influential on how we see ourselves and how we act in public um 
if you grew up in any environment where emotions were squashed down, then you won't have learned the tools of how to manage those feelings. And I think the same thing if you grew up with with parents who didn't argue, right? And that sounds strange. Uh, usually we talk about happy home lives being a, a good thing for for children and stability. But what's really important to understand is that two people living together never get on all the time, forever and ever, amen. It's just not natural. It's just not how it goes. And that arguments and conflict are natural. They are a natural part of relationships. They are a natural part of the dynamics between two people because we never fit perfectly together. And it can be actually not necessarily damaging, but unhelpful for children if they grow up in an environment where conflicts or, or debates between parents are hidden or kept away because what they don't see is that conflict can be normal, that you can have a conflict with someone and still love them, you know, that I can disagree with you, I still have deep respect for you, and that we can maybe row, maybe argue, but come back together and that the conflict doesn't have to be the end of the relationship or that the conflict doesn't mean that I don't love you anymore. The conflict doesn't mean that you're uh, dismissed or abandoned or kicked out. So, again, it's about those ideas of, of becoming familiar, because I think also, as a slight aside, people struggle with conflict. Um, people often talk about not wanting to get into a conflict situation, um, not wanting to argue and always conceding whenever there is some sort of difficulty. And that can often be about a fear that the other person will stop liking them we'll stop caring about them, we'll stop loving them. And um, and I think that's unhelpful because being able to tolerate conflict is a really important life skill. Okay, I'm just going to read a couple more questions. How do we know if our mindful practice is good? That's a good question. I'm always one for the individual being the expert. So Again, in the way that we all have a different constitution and that we're all built differently, it might be worth trying out different types of mindful activity. And just for the avoidance of doubt, a mindful activity is any one where your full attention is paid to it and ideally without judgment. So when you're fully engrossed in something and you're not making a judgment about whether this is good or bad or whether you're succeeding in it or failing in it, um, whether other people would approve or be impressed by you, you know, that that you're engrossed in an activity. And that activity might be anything. For a lot of people, it's cooking. Um, when I did Bake Off, I had a lot of people say, yes, baking is kind of my meditation. It's where I go to zone out. Uh, it might simply be going for a walk. Um, sometimes it's just lying still and just letting what emerges in your mind emerge. Um sometimes practicing a musical instrument, anything. So anything that kind of absorbs your your attention. I would suggest that it is good in as far as we say these things are good. If you come out with a greater feeling of clarity and and I, I want to say confidence, but I think what I mean is a kind of sense of being settled. So your mindful activity, whatever it is, and it might be worth trying out a few different ones and even ones that you 
think probably wouldn't suit you. When you come out of it, there should be a sense of being a bit more grounded, a bit more centered. Things should feel a little bit clearer. And then you have a sense that something good has occurred. Uh, and I want to say about mindful activities, again, that they're not wishy-washy, uh, particularly meditation. There's some really beautiful studies. The first ones came out of Harvard a few years ago, which showed that just eight weeks of, I think they were doing 40 minutes a day, um, of mindful meditation changed, thickened the brain. It literally reshaped the brain. So excuse me, these are incredibly, incredibly powerful interventions if you can get on board with them and if you can do them uh, kind of consistently. And if you're interested in the mechanisms, it's because uh, attention releases a compound called acetylcholine, which strengthens the synapse, thickens the synapse. Um, and that prepares the brain for learning, uh, but is also kind of neuroprotective. So try out a few, see how they go uh, and see what makes you feel a bit more grounded. Again, something simple like journaling or going for a walk um, without your phone <laughs> or without music might be might be good ones to try. Okay, so someone's just made a comment. My parents never argued in front of us, so it took me a long time to understand that an argument didn't mean the end of the relationship. So yeah, exactly what I, I said that you don't have to, arguments don't have to be the end of everything. And actually understanding that, I think I did a post called Love and Hate a little while back on my Instagram, that these things sit in synergy together, uh, that you can't, if you completely love someone without understanding that they're a whole person with faults and flaws, then actually all you're doing is idealizing them. And you can't relate really to someone who you're idealizing because you've just turned them into a god who you just kind of worship a little bit. Um, and if you're if you're not willing to have a healthy, obviously I'm not telling people to just go out and start arguments for no reason, but if you're not willing to have a healthy conflict with someone, then actually what you end up doing is compromising yourself often. You end up having to say, well, I want this thing, but I'm not going to, I don't want to cause a fuss or I don't want to start a fight, so I'm just going to ignore it and we'll just carry on. And all that does, I think, most often, is to breed resentment because you know you're not happy or that you're compromising yourself or that you're not getting the things that you need from the relationship or, again, that you feel uncertain that the relationship can tolerate a little bit of tension. Um, so, yes, healthy conflict is a good thing. Maybe I'll do a workshop on conflict. I don't know. Y'all let me know if that's something that you would be interested in. Um, okay, so I did have another question in. And... This person asked, how not to get mad or angry, handling the first reaction, which is generally not the good one. So I guess I want to start out with the idea that there are no, okay, so yes to the conflict workshop, okay. Um, there are no bad emotions. There are no, as, as far as I'm concerned, as far as most therapists are concerned, there are no negative emotions. And I know colloquially we talk about negative emotions and positive emotions and that it's better if you feel positive emotions but like I said and I think as the book expresses quite well that these uncomfortable emotions which is how I will describe them 
these uncomfortable emotions are important because they, they're making you aware of some sort of conflict between your internal and your external environments or, or, or situation, right? So they have something to tell you. And to take anger as the example, uh, and I go into this in detail in the podcast, so I won't kind of rehash it too much here, but if... If you feel, if you can understand that your anger might be linked to a sense of injustice, that's really important because what it does is to give you the opportunity to fix that, to do what you can to overcome that injustice, to advocate for yourself, to work towards better situation for yourself or for other people. And that is a really positive thing. So uh, I think I, I made a mistake the other day in... in in an interview, and I said negative emotions, and I wanted to correct myself, so I'll just say it here just to make sure. No such thing as a negative emotions, a negative emotion, uncomfortable ones, but they are important and worth listening to and shouldn't be suppressed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So to follow on from that, so this person's question about how not to get mad or angry, obviously I'm going to question kind of what they mean. What do you mean by not getting mad or angry? I, I'm a big fan of anger. <laughs> I think it's quite useful. But maybe what you mean is the uncontrollable elements of anger. So feeling as if you're out of control or you're not making yourself clear or that you're not being perceived in the right way or, or perhaps that you feel like you might do something that you later regret. If we're going on that assumption, then I'm going to say, again, the first thing is to start getting familiar with the way you experience anger your, and your thoughts about anger. Because quite often people have a negative view of anger. They don't like it. They don't want it. They think it means this person is uncouth or uh, poorly educated. They, you know, they're not very sophisticated if you experience anger. So people can have quite negative 
attitudes towards anger itself, which get in the way of being willing to experience it. So I would look at the attitudes to the emotion itself, get familiar with the way that you experience it. And then if you start to feel, you know, if we're saying you start to feel uh, as if you're going to do something that you regret, get up, take yourself away, calm down, but don't suppress the feeling. So if you need to scream at the sky or phone a friend and have a rant express the emotion understand the emotion don't suppress it understand what's what you're what it's trying to tell you and then when you feel calmer you can go back and advocate for yourself I had to take a minute out because I was really angry that you came back with these corrections actually, you hadn't been very clear with what you wanted me to do in the first place. So it felt unfair that that you were correcting me. Um, You know, something like that. And then what you're able to do is to turn that experience into a positive and improve your circumstances going forward. I'm going to hope that I've answered that one. Um, Got another question come in. Could feeling more comfortable with my uncomfortable emotions make me less emotionally reactive? So, let me just close that. Um, again, I, I, I'm such a therapist. <laughs> um, again, uh, it depends on what you mean by emotionally reactive. I think being emotionally reactive is a good thing. Uh, if you're not feeling your emotions, you're kind of not being human. And it might be a something to do with your attitude towards that emotion. So you might think that you're overreacting or you might have been told that you're overreacting, but actually uh, in a different circumstance with different people, your response is completely normal. So um, possibly, um, I think certainly understanding your emotions helps you to feel Uh, more sure of yourself. So for example, I've been working through my emotions for a long time. I've been doing this for uh, studying psychology for nearly 20 years. Um, One of my friends, (laughs) one of my friends said to me that she felt sorry for me because I could never really be angry with other people because I could understand their motivations too much, (laughs) which is kind of true. So I guess what it, what I would say is that what it can do is to give you a little bit of space between an almost automatic reaction and it can make you uh, a little bit more neutral perhaps or something Uh, that doesn't mean that it shuts the feeling off but it means yes that you have a bit more I guess a bit more balance a bit more calm a bit more objectivity to certain situations because you aren't being drawn straight in to that emotional response. And there was a study recently which showed, this was in the context of lying, so it wasn't necessarily a good thing in the context of the paper. So what they did uh, was to test people's emotional intelligence and then get them to lie uh, because lying is stressful and that's why we get lie detector tests, which are, I did a paper on lie detector tests and how effective they are. But anyways, you know, that the idea behind a lie detector test is that lying is stressful and you can see that stress in your body response in kind of the electricity that flows through your skin or the amount of sweating that happens. 
And what they found was that people with higher emotional intelligence were more able to tolerate the discomfort of the feeling. So that was telling us uh, kind of what I'm saying is if you can understand the feeling, you'll find it less physically uh, uncomfortable. You'll find it less distracting or awkward or cringeworthy. And that can help you to tolerate it much better. So in that sense, yes, understanding the feeling can make you much less physiologically and psychologically reactive to it. Okay, so we've got a question that I think should be for the gut health doctor. Um, I would speak to uh, Dr. Megan Rossi about that. I think you popped onto the wrong live. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, another question has come in. Okay. Okay. Um, so someone has asked about what method is there for leaning in to your emotions for beginners? Um, and I guess I love the idea of being an emotional beginner. Uh, In a sense, we are sometimes, in a sense, we aren't, right? Because we have the capacity from birth to experience all of these feelings. But depending on our developmental experiences, we may or may not have developed the skills of understanding or managing them. So I guess the first thing I would say to an absolute beginner, so let's say someone who has routinely suppressed their emotions or locked them up bottled them up um, and has been praised perhaps for that well done you're so strong well done for not crying that sort of thing and so if we take someone who's had that experience then what you need to do is get on board with the idea that emotions are natural emotions are hardwired They are positive for us in terms of they work with us. They're not working against us. Sometimes it feels like that. That's often because we resist them. Uh, If we can tolerate them, they are short-lived and we can move through and carry on with our lives. So I would start there with your conceptualization, your thinking and your thoughts about what emotions are, why they exist, what they do for us. Um, Because again, like I say, some people have quite negative attitude towards emotions, which which gets in the way of them being able to make the best use of of them. And then I think for an absolute beginner, I would kind of use a, a graded exposure. So when you're working with people with phobias, for example, let's say someone had a phobia of spiders and In a CBT paradigm, what you do is a kind of graded exposure. So I would get you to think about a spider first, and then I would show you a picture of a spider, and then I would bring in a a rubber model of a spider, you know, so the person builds up slowly that tolerance of being able to tolerate that emotion. So I would probably do something like that or invite someone to do something like that, which is, okay, so... You're in a safe place now. Maybe you're in your your therapist's office and you have real trouble dealing with anger. Let's think about a time when you were last angry. 
and and then I would invite that person to tell me where they're feeling that that sensation, what their thoughts are about those feelings, what are they making a judgment about it? Are they is there a part of their brain which is saying no, don't feel that, push that away, that's bad? Then we'd have a little discussion about that little that little voice. Um, and so once you've got through their kind of defenses against the feeling, then okay, so let's see how much we can tolerate. So tell me about the thing that made you angry. So tell me, take me step by step through that incident and let's work out where the anger started. And so I would probably do that. And then we, what we might do as a person gets more comfortable and confident with that experience is to, uh, you know, maybe start with a, a small anger. You know, someone pushes you in front, pushes in front of you in a queue uh, and build up to a, what was probably the real thing that they were angry about, which is a, a bigger interrelational situation that they haven't been facing. That's often the case. Uh, so I would probably do that if I were working with an absolute, absolute beginner and always, always journaling alongside so that, you know, you're not always relying on someone else to help you process your emotions, but you get into the habit of being able to process them for yourself work through them and be aware of them for yourself so that you can be doing this continually on an ongoing basis. All right. Um, I've had another question in. Actually, I think this is more of a PTSD question, but I'll, I'll ask it just in case there's someone else out there with the same kind of concern. Um, so this person has said that when they think about a previous abusive experience or an abuser, that they still feel intense physical sensations, heart palpitations, distress. Um, and how can they how can they stop feeling that? I think this is more of a PTSD response. So this is a trauma response, uh, which is slightly different to dealing with kind of emotions on an everyday basis. And what happens in PTSD on a neurological level is that we have greater activation and greater thickening of an area of the brain called the amygdala, which is our threat detection center. So the part of your brain which is looking out for dangers in the environment or dangers in the relationship and trying to always keep you aware. Uh, so on one hand, you know, that's adaptive if you are in a situation of threat, that you're alert to it and that you're vigilant to it in advance. So it gives you greater opportunity to get out of there. But over a prolonged period of time, what it can do is kind of hardwire in that what we call hypervigilance. Um, so constantly looking out for, for, for those worries, for those threats. And also what it can do is to lower the threshold at which your stress response is triggered, which I think is what this person's describing. So it means that it takes less threat, less danger, less risk to flip on that person's fight or flight response. So, uh, and, and then there's also aspects of PTSD, which are about dysregulation in the way that memories are organized in the brain so I would say thank you for your question um and I'm really really sorry that you're struggling and I would suggest speaking to your GP or trying to find a therapist because this feels to me just from and I know it's just one line and I might be making some assumptions but it feels to me that we might be talking 
more about a PTSD response than a generalized emotional difficulty. All right. So I think those were the questions that came in. I realize, again, these are just kind of turning into to workshops, which is fine. It's fine with me, as long as it's fine with you. They're Q&As rather than book reviews, but hopefully you found the book interesting as a starting point for your thinking and for your questions around this. And I guess I wanted to make the point that emotions are both this kind of physiological response and a psychological response, because so often we think about emotions only as in the mind. They're only, it's all in your head. And that's when you get really unhelpful, ridiculous statements about, you know, just snap out of it or just think positive or, you know, whatever it might be. And that completely disregards the physiology and the physical reality of emotions. I've got a raised hand. And so if you take only one thing away today, it's, I would like it to be the idea that emotions are real and that they have a physiological basis and that they are hardwired to protect you and to look after you and that they should be taken seriously. You'll see me post an awful lot about how you need to take your emotions seriously. Okay, another question. So the book talked about experiencing emotions in waves and not to dwell on them afterwards. I can tend to be a person that dwells on them. Any tips on how to let things go? Thank you for that, Andrea. Um, I have a slight issue with the idea of dwelling uh, because (laughs) I think um, people often talk down therapy because they say, oh, you're just dwelling on the past. You're just dwelling on things. Um, Processing is different from dwelling. Thank you very much. Uh, So I guess I would uh, question whether it really is dwelling or whether it's an attempt to understand. Essentially, you're never going to get through emotion unless you understand it. Bottling it up, pretending it hasn't happened, uh, saying it's negative and you don't need it, saying you are above it, it. None of that works. It will come back. Emotions don't go away. They transform. So either they sit there and get worse and worse and worse, or they transform into some other symptom, right? So they might transform into physiological stress that becomes expressed as IBS. That's, you know, stress is one of the main causes, uh, main triggers of IBS, for example, or psoriasis or back pain. Chronic pain and back pain have a huge psychological component. If any of you have read the book, It's All in Your Head, by a consultant neurologist, we talk about somatoformal conversion disorders, where emotions that have been kind of judged by the mind as unsuitable or inappropriate or wrong are transformed into a physical symptom. So, that, uh, sorry, I'm getting off my high horse and my soapbox. Um, so I guess I would first question whether you're dwelling or not. And then I think, and uh, maybe I have, I've been doing this uh, for too long. I'm not really sure. But I think once you understand an emotion, it tends to dissipate. You know, so I would question whether you've got to grips with what 
was happening, whether you have fully understood, fully processed, fully made sense of whatever that thing was, right? So if you were, you know, sometimes we think back on something embarrassing from 15 years ago and it still makes you, but, you know, it should be temporary. You shouldn't constantly be still feeling that anxiety or that stress or that worry. So I guess I would say that it needs to be kind of thought through and understood. And usually, and, you know, you can let me know if I've, I've missed something. Usually once you've understood it, the emotion goes away. Okay, so it sounds like what might be useful for you is really making sure you've addressed all of the little niggles. Um, you know, so maybe you have, uh, and I'm just going to make some, uh, you know, make up some scenarios, but maybe you've argued about, I don't know, who's in charge of doing the dishes or whatever it might be. And, and that's dealt with. But actually, what you were a bit more annoyed about was the way they responded to you in that argument the other day. And that's just kind of been sitting there, but you weren't sure whether it was worth mentioning. And so you just kind of ignored it a little bit, but it hasn't really quite gone away. And so at the first opportunity for conflict, it emerges. But again, because you haven't paid attention to the original worry, it comes out as this minor issue about chores when actually the real thing was that thing from the other day. So I would... I would encourage you to just, you know, just make, take a little inventory of the things you might be annoyed at (laughs) for yourself, you know, for yourself, write it out. What is this? Is this something that is legitimate and I need to talk about? Or is this something perhaps that I've misconstrued? And sometimes it can be a bit of both. And you just want to have that conversation that I know that you didn't mean it like this, but I just need to let you know that when you say this, 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 I feel it like that. And that's about helping other people to understand us and our emotions and helping other people to, you know, to take responsibility for for our effect on other people. Um, So that might be a thing to try. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I got another question in. Do I agree with the book's premise um, that you need to sit with the difficult emotion to learn to manage it better I guess broadly yes I think this is and this might just be this is the the fundamental philosophy philosophy of therapy which is that we sit with things in order to be able to tolerate them and to be able to bear them and then that gives us greater resilience and confidence to be able to deal with a bigger thing. Um, we call it stress inoculation. And ideally, that is a process that happens throughout childhood, which is you're exposed to a minor stressor. So let's say a child uh, joins a sports team and their team loses. And it's considered a minor stressor because, you know, they didn't, it's not going to, create a huge issue for the rest of their lives but it is unpleasant it is uncomfortable it's not very nice and but what's important about making sure that that child is able to express that disappointment is is that they learn then how how to lose or how to tolerate frustration how to deal with disappointment so that the next time they feel frustration disappointment sadness they have started to develop the skills 
to manage it. Uh, one of the problems with helicopter parenting, for example, you know, when a parent swoops in and maybe two kids have had a fight in the playground and the parent swoops in and says, you have to make friends or phones the head and says they have to make up and this thing can't happen, is that it interferes with the child's capacity to learn the skills to manage those emotions later on. And so sitting with the emotions is kind of like that. It's about building that capacity to tolerate the feeling because if you can't tolerate it, what you will do is avoid it. And if you avoid it, what you always end up doing is kind of living your life at arm's length, right? You you always end up trying to keep something at bay and having your head turned the other way while, you know, the house is on fire and you're over here going, oh, everything's fine, everything's lovely, don't worry about it. So, yes, I guess I would agree um, with the premise that far that sitting with an emotion, and that's a phrase that's overused in therapy. I try not to use any of those cliche phrases if I can help it, but learning to tolerate it, long, learning to bear it is a really important skill because essentially there's a whole bunch of things that happen to you in life that are out of your control and there is nothing for you to do but to bear it. You know, There's nothing for you to do but to learn how to put up with it, how to ride it out until things improve. And if you can't do that, what you end up doing is creating more suffering for yourself because you spend a lot of time saying, I wish it were different. I wish this had happened. I hate that that happened. And so you've got the pain overlaid with additional suffering. So sitting with the feeling, bearing it, tolerating it can help to relieve the suffering, the kind of additional suffering that comes with the pain, if that makes sense. I might do the difference between pain and suffering in a separate post um okay another question chronic back pain i've seen lots of doctors not one of them has found a physiological root of this pain could you talk more about the aforementioned psych reasons short sure thing um so i would recommend reading it's all i think it's called it's all in your head i will i'll probably post it tomorrow just to double check and Psychosomatic or conversion disorders have had a really bad rap, um, mostly because of the stigma around mental health and mental illness. People think, oh, it's because you're mad or you're making it up or you're weak or just there's something wrong with you. And that comes from that dualism, that, that separation, you know, where what happens in the mind is separate from the body and what happens in the body is real, but what happens in the mind is imagined. And so... We have to start from the perspective that the body and the mind are one organism. They're not separate. They're not one thing happening over here and one thing happening in complete isolation over here. What happens in the mind affects the body and vice versa. And so with conversion disorders, what happens, and they, they can be really complex, often they follow trauma, which is what gives us a hint that there's something psychological triggering these these physiological um, symptoms. And I guess the point to make is that they are real symptoms. The people are in real pain. They're not imagining it. They're not making it up. They're not malingering. They are suffering these real uh, distress, physical distress. But what usually happens is that following a trauma or following some difficulty, or maybe it's a compound trauma, something that's taken a long time to pile up, but they haven't been able to deal with it for whatever reason. So maybe they've been in a traumatic or abusive relationship, or maybe just 
whatever the trauma was just overwhelmed their capacity to cope with it, right? So maybe they were in a car crash, it was non-fatal, but they, they thought they were going to die and they were terrified of it and it was just too much for them to cope with. If you if you don't work through something, it has to go somewhere. And there's this idea that the body remembers. The body, and particularly, this is kind of an analytical thoughts uh, first, uh, before we develop the capacity to process our emotions psychologically, our bodies hold on to them, right? And you see that with little babies. When they're stressed, it's like their entire bodies shake um, and they go really, you know, their faces screw up. And that's the idea that they're, whatever they're experiencing is through the body and they don't have the capacity to work it through psychologically. So uh, oh, I've got 26 minutes, 26 seconds remaining, so I'll finish this and then we have to go. So uh, with psychosomatic conversion disorders, those feelings are the, the mind is overwhelmed and the, uh, the symptom comes out in the body and you have to deal with both. You have to feel, deal with what's happening physiologically, but also that orig- original trauma. Four seconds left. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> and I will catch you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.